All right. So um, about a month ago, uh, I had uh, it was just like a regular evening, and usually I'm not home. That I usually get home pretty late, but I was home this evening, just sitting on my couch watching Jeopardy. It comes on at 7:30, and I was really excited that I was home. And then I heard a knock on the door, and I went out and, and I opened the door, and it was a few friends of mine, and. I don't have that many friends, so not that many people come over, but I was like, what the heck are you guys doing here? And they had this kind of concerned look, and I'm a pastor, and when people give a concerned look, you oh my God, and you start expecting the worst, and they were like, hey, can we talk to you for a bit, minute? And they came in, sat on the couch, and they kind of like fumbled around with their words, trying to avoid what the topic was that they wanted to say. And they say, hey, we, we need to talk to you about something serious, like, we're here for an intervention. I was like, for who? And they're like, You. I'm like, what, me? Uh, and, and they said, we think that you're a workaholic. So, of course, I, I, I argued and I fought back. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I'm not a workaholic. Like, of course, I work here and there. But, like, and then sometimes I get a little bit tired. But, like, I'm normal. I'm like everybody else. And so we had this back and forth argument that started to get a little heated. And they decided to kind of shut me down and kind of pull out the trump card and to say, okay, fine. Can we ask you a few questions? And so they, they asked me these. Do you work more or longer than you plan to or than your body can handle? Have you tried to cut back or stop more than once and couldn't? Do you spend a lot of time working and get sick after? Do you work so much you can barely think of anything else? Or have you had any problems maintaining your responsibilities because of your habit? Have you kept working even though it caused problems for you with your relationships? Do you quit or cut back on other activities that are important or enjoyable to you in order to work? Have you kept overworking even though it made you feel depressed, anxious, or hurt your health? Have you had to work more than you used to in order to get the level of fatigue you expected? Or found that your usual number of hours had much less effect than before? So this is a fake story. Nobody interrupts me when I'm watching Jeopardy. (laughs) Nobody came to my house, but some of you get the point. I actually pulled all these questions off of Google when I typed in signs of alcoholism. And if you notice, I changed all the words in brackets with drink, alcohol. Do you drink more than uh, so much you can barely think of anything else? And, and it's crazy. Do you quit back on other enjoyable activities in order to drink or to work? And it's funny how much of a parallel there is, right? Those questions are pretty legitimate to those of us who are maybe have an unhealthy habit or pattern of overworking and showing the symptoms of that. I don't know about you, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you actually could say yes to those questions? I can. There are things that are enjoyable in my life that, that are gone or I don't do because I'm working too much. And I can say yes to a lot of those questions, and they become signs and symptoms of overworking or workaholicism, if you will. Last week, Pastor Bill, he, he shared this uh, pie chart with us in, in this new sermon series we're calling Whole Life Discipleship. And the point of the series uh, is that if, if this is the average American breakdown of our time spent, and uh, some people did this study and they found that 6% of Christians uh, used their daily weeks in church gatherings, and if that's the only place we're living out and expressing our faith, then it's kind of small, right? 
And also, that's the fact of the matter is that Jesus didn't intend for us to only live out our faith at church. It is a whole life of discipleship. And today, uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Bill, he said, hey, I want you to preach about leisure. I was like, leisure? What the heck do I say about leisure? And I was kind of like, oh, okay, like you're the boss. But secretly, I'm like, why is he making me do this, you know? Um, but actually, I realized it's super important. And first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this pie because I really dislike this. Daily life, that includes washing the dishes, um, getting groceries, commuting. Those of you who commute and drive in one-hour L.A. traffic or sit on the T crammed in with people, do you, does that belong in the same category as fun? No, it doesn't, right? So I'm actually going to cut that in, in, I don't know what percentage, and my task today is to focus on the part of our pie in dedicating our leisure, our rest, play, hobby, clumping that into a portion of our pie and saying, how is God in control of that? How are we actually being disciples of Jesus Christ in that area? And the reason why at first I grumbled, but now I realize it's important, is our demographic here. We're pretty much all young, educated professionals. And so if anybody needs to talk about, are you resting well? Are you overworking? I really feel like it's us. This is the category, I think, out of all these, where I feel like it's at most high risk, where we compromise the most, where we kind of shrug our shoulders and don't really prioritize it or think it's a big deal, where we did plan on something but decide that it can get actually pushed away and isn't that important. It's not the priority. And the tragedy of that is it gets most abused, but isn't it the most important If I were to ask all of you, which one of these portions of the pie do you want to be bigger and bigger and bigger? Would any of you guys say, oh, commuting. I wish I could commute more. No, it's play. It's fun. It's enjoyment and pleasure and hanging out with friends and resting. Having a moment to take a deep breath and sit on the couch for a minute and sleeping a little bit more. And so today, that's my task. I want to talk about our leisure, our rest, and our play and talk about how it matters to God. And we'll, we'll find later that it's actually a gift that he gives us. And I also want to talk about the status of our hearts. And why I want to argue that we do kind of trample all over it. And it's not a priority to us. So for that, we're going to be reading from Psalms again. Um, you know, we just did our sermon series on the Psalms. So I was really glad to go back to it. Um, for Psalm 127. So if you want to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps, it's 127, which is in the way back at the end of the Psalms. And if you don't have either of those, uh, we'll read it together up on the screen. So Psalm 127, starting from verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this psalm, I mean, I read it really quickly. It's only a few verses and you... I mean, maybe I read it too fast, but you kind of get the clear message right off the bat. It's, it's super simple, super small. 
This is a, um, a psalm written by Solomon, and basically his point is, God is in control of everything, and you can work, work, and do all that you can, and put all your effort and toil and labor into particular things to ensure the outcome of your life, but if God isn't there involved, it's in vain. You can try all you want to fabricate, fabricate and mandate the outcomes of your life, but ultimately you're not in control. And to illustrate these, uh, his poem uh, or his point, Solomon uses three really universally felt and important areas of our life. So he talks about the home and building up the household. He talks about uh, um, uh, security in, in terms of safety, but also in provision of needs. And then he talks about family and uses the illustration of childbearing. So all three of these things, whether we're all either experiencing the stress and the work and the, and the wanting to really hold steadfastly onto those things right now or we will in the future, but basically Solomon just kind of says all these big things to illustrate his point that God is the only one in control. I want to read just a, a quick snippet of, of the psalm again, but before I do, I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, we kind of keep the author at a distance. Oh, it's like the Bible. It's God's word. And, and we kind of forget that there were people who also experienced life. Um, and so before we read it again, I want to like, think about your favorite author or your favorite songwriter or poet. Oftentimes, their most famous and, and deep and powerful work, it comes after they learned a difficult life lesson, right? Like Taylor Swift, every single song is about the dude that she broke up with before, like, I wonder if she would have all those songs if she wasn't breaking up with so many people, right? And, and, and in a deeper way, like, that's kind of the authors and the poets, writers that we really enjoy. Is after something happens, and Solomon, he went through this stuff. He is writing from an experience of learning a difficult lesson when he writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring are a reward from him. So he's not just like, just saying stuff because he's a biblical writer. He's a poet. He's writing this psalm. And if we look in 1 Kings at Solomon's life story, all this stuff happened to him, and which is why he's able to say it. So he was a builder. He built up his palace and his, his kingdom that was powerful, and then it all came crumbling down in vain. It wasn't up to him. It comes to his security. He had it, and then poof, it was gone. It was in vain. And his family, of all these things, his children, if you read his story in 1 Kings, I, you know, we know Solomon. Oh, he's the one who built the temple. He was the wise king. The other thing he's really popular for was how much of a mess his family life was. He was not good in the area of family. So Solomon is not just on some soapbox preaching at us. He's witnessing. He's lived through the hard consequences of believing that he can run his own life. But now he knows the truth. Only God is in control. We are desperately in need of God. That song that the worship team led us is exactly what Solomon would sing. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. So I want to ask if your life of leisure and of play and fun and rest, if that reflects complete dependence on God, or if your work life, and by work, I'm including students, like 
what you do for work, studying, if that reflects a lot of independence and not trusting him to do what you really need. And many of us young folks in Boston, we tend to be in this boat where we just need to push harder and we need to impress the boss or we need to make sure to be the top of our class. Otherwise, we won't be a competitive candidate for the next uh, position at work or my resume will be weak and it's gonna be, I'm going to have insecurities around it or I'm not going to be able to get into law school, med school, dental school, X school, PhD school, master school, whatever. We're not going to be able to get in. All my life is going to come crumbling down unless I work and push. My children are not going to get the best education and they're not going to grow up and they don't have the proper daycare in the proper elementary school and if, are we living in the right neighborhood because we need to move it's this is us I want to I want to talk forget about the theology purely on the surface whether or not we're in control let me just ask a few questions like what ifs to just to show like we are really not in control so concerning study and work and, and children that kind of stuff if you're applying for new jobs, right, what if the HR person never looks at your resume? You don't control that. What if it's just in a pile and they never look at it, they just toss it out? If you're applying to med school or dental school or, some, or, or whatever school, what if the admissions rep that gets assigned you has a bias against you? Or what if they have a bias, a favorable bias towards someone else? What if your timing is just off and your application happens to be at the biggest time that Harvard Med has ever received applications, the most ever, and you happen to be that year? What if your boss doesn't appreciate all your hard work and it means nothing no matter how hard you try because your boss is a, not a good supervisor? Or what if your boss does really care and then they get a new job and they leave? What if the economy tanks and then you get laid off? Aren't just surface level. We can grip and clench and hold and say, I've got to control every outcome, but we just aren't in control. There's so many variables. And the reason why I share this is not so that we get discouraged and be like, fine, it doesn't matter, so I'm just going to give up. But I actually think for the church, for the people of God, it ought to be an encouragement to us in that it can lead us to pause, reflect on God's control and loving care of our lives, and then for us to be able to take a deep breath and sigh and have peace. To be able to pray, God, you love me more than I know, and you're fully in control. Isn't it awesome that we cannot comprehend God's love for you. It's so great that we cannot describe it with the feeble words we have, and he's sovereign. Shouldn't that give us such a peace? God, you love me and you're... Can can we say that together? Can you repeat this after me? God, you love me more than I know. And you're fully in control. See, our lives are secure in his hands not in our effort. Our lives are are secure when his hands and his fingerprints are all over us, not because we strive harder to make sure that we're in the right place. We have a bunch of responsibilities that we need to tend to. Don't go and like quit everything, but he's in control. And that's my first point for this message. We have a role, but only God is in control. All of us have some sort of responsibility in the story, but God is ultimately the only, only, only one in control. I don't know about all of you, but uh, when I was growing up, I never had the sex, birds, and the bees talk with my parents. So basically, I learned everything through TV and through my friends. 
And then eventually, as I got older, learning from people who've gone before me, so like my older cousin who started having kids and families and, and youth group teachers and like my pastor and all that. And I realized now in adulthood that when I look back, I had so many skewed and misconceptions about, about human sexuality and reproduction and all that stuff. And the number one misunderstanding I had was on pregnancy and conception. So in middle school, I just remember all the warnings were about teen pregnancy, right? Like, oh, like you're going to get pregnant, so like, you got to stay away. And then in sex ed, that's basically all they taught us was teen pregnancy. And then MTV started a TV show, and everyone's freaking out. And because of that, I, w- I don't know, how old are you then? 10, 11? I don't know. However old I was, I, I always thought if you just have sex without protection, boom, you're pregnant. So that's just because so, they, they scared us. Like, oh, don't have sex when you're a teenager because you're going to get pregnant. And so I figured, okay, so all you got to do is woo-woo and do the willy-nilly, you know, and like just nonsensical sounds, but you all know what I'm talking about somehow. Uh, And then you get pregnant and magic. And I got a little bit older and then eventually I realized, oh, that's actually not the case. So there's a very small window where women can get pregnant. And and so some, some couples will just you know, pull the goalie and then just go with the flow. You know, just do what maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. And others are very planny. And so they'll look at the calendar and take ovulation tests because the window is small. And then I learned that, oh, okay, so you don't just get pregnant at any time. It has to be within the, the time frame. And I said, oh, that's how you get pregnant. And then I got a little bit older and I realized that's not the case. So I'm using this as an illustration, but for the younger folk here who your friends and your family aren't in that state of getting married and, and, and start family planning, I also want this to be a learning moment for you that infertility issues and just the struggle of getting pregnant is super common. It's very common. You yourselves or your siblings, your best friends, your wedding party in the future, somebody is going to struggle with infertility or just taking longer to get pregnant than they wished. It's just, it's just a reality of it. And so for those of you who are younger, um, I'm not saying you should never ask couples, hey, like, when are you family planning? But as a church and as we relate to each other, don't go, why are you taking so long with kids? Or like, you know, I know everyone means well, but what we don't realize is that sometimes those couples are like in, smiling, oh, I don't know, but... Really, they're devastated and they've been trying forever. And so that question, they have no answer. So I'm not saying it's, it's, it's out of balance to ask. You, should, you can ask and that's totally fine. You can ask me and Unji at any time. You ask, ask, but do it sensitively knowing that infertility and family planning struggles is, is a very much a reality. And the reason why I say this at all is to say that family planning, I, I mean, a lot of us are not there but it's one of the realest ways that we learn that we have a role, but God is in control. Married people, can I get an amen? You, you have a role. You got to do the uh-uh-uh-uh. But whether you produce a child is going to be God's decision. And Solomon, he uses this example about children. And you, what does he say? He says in verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. You can't control it. 
And so he uses this big example that will just come into play in all of our lives at one point, whether it's children or security or home or resources, the meal that you're going to eat, the job that you're going to have, your possessions, health, everything that we think is just going to happen because we're doing our job in it, it's just not the way that it is. We have a role and responsibilities in this life that we need to tend to, but God is the only one in control of it. For my second point, I want to spend some time in verse 2. Solomon writes, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. So in this verse, Solomon, he considers our early rising. All you guys are just working so hard that you go to bed late, and then what do you do? You don't even sleep properly. You wake up early because you need to work hard again because you're worried. You don't think God's going to provide your next meal. And so we overwork ourselves, blinded to the reality that our Our laboring is not going to provide the security we think that we're establishing. You know, I use pregnancy as an example. What about health? I could eat vegetables all my life and work out all my life. Can I still know that I won't get some disease? That my life won't be cut short? I don't know that. I can eat every salad in the world and follow every single diet trend and fad. But do I really know that? I don't. And so Solomon says that your workaholicism is in vain. And then beautifully, he contrasts the workaholism with the rest. And he says, for God grants sleep to those he loves. This is where we see clearly that sleep is an expression of God's love. It's a gift. Many of us think sleeping is a waste of time. That should be on the question of workaholism do you think sleeping is a waste of time and if you say yes then that's a sign it's an expression of his love when you have like a good night's rest or like take a nap that was just like really good or just sitting on the beach and just bumming on vacation when you are resting and at play and your heart is merry you can legitimately say jesus loves me this is a gift from him you ever think about how he didn't have to create us to be to biologically need sleep to survive why did he do that When you're sleeping, you're unconscious. Therefore, it is the maximum state of of out-of-controlness. You can't do anything, but you wake up. But God didn't sleep in that duration. He still took care of your life. He still brought you back to consciousness and you live another day. And the things that he provided for you are still there. It's a gift. But the problem is when the gift doesn't get received well. Or when it gets choked out by busyness. This coming Friday, the college students and I are going to go off into New Hampshire to the college retreat. And at the last day, unless it's, not, unless it's raining, let's pray for no rain, we're going to have a, a, a bonfire. And I don't, know if, I don't know if that was there last year, but Pilgrim Pines made a new um, really cool uh, fire pit thingy. And so we'll sit around it. Maybe we'll kumbaya a little bit and like, I don't know throw things into the fire. And when I was in college, all the girls would leave and all the guys would pee the fire out and maybe we'll do that. Um, anyway, so we're going to build a fire and, and it's hard to build a fire. Uh, even with matches sometimes, like I'm really bad at it. I don't know if you've ever gone camping and you tried to build a fire. But the number one, so you know, you can watch YouTube videos or read blogs or maybe you were in the Boy Scouts and you learned whatever. Everybody says the number one mistake people make when they try to make a fire is that they overcrowd the pit. 
right? So we're like, ooh, like, you know, you get your matches and get the logs and kindling. And then we put all the logs in a teepee and we stuff it full of, kin- of kindling and newspaper and we light it and it doesn't go. Or it does and we think it's going to catch and then whew, it just, it dies. And we do it again and again and again and it just keeps dying. And the reason is, is because we overcrowd it. There's no room for it to breathe. There's no oxygen that's actually channeling in between the different pieces. So it's going to snuff it out and it chokes out the oxygen and so nothing can burn or sustain. I think similarly, God gives us this gift of rest and of play. But in order for it to actually burn and sustain itself, it needs room to breathe. But I think we kind of treat our, that portion of our pie of, of fun, of relaxation, of peaceful moment to just, just zone out for a little bit. We snuff it out and we choke out the oxygen by just throwing in all these logs. So it's like, you know, I need to, I got to go work, but then I got to volunteer and then I need to spend time in the library. I need to take classes at night. Um, and if I'm going to the healthcare field, I can't on my resume not say that I didn't volunteer in a hospital when I was in college, so I got to volunteer. The ho- and, and we just, and then we decide to get married and have kids and it's like we put water all over the fire and that's not going to burn. And then we get near it and we got a match. It's like, and then we keep going and it's not burning. We're like, what's going on? We're choking out the oxygen from any potential room to grow and to refer to sustain. And all these things are awesome. Obviously, starting a family, volunteering, beefing up your resume and making it healthy, etc. These are good things for us. But when we have no boundaries, when we have no strategy, when we have no intentionality and we're just adding log after log, it's going to snuff it out. The busyness in our lives will choke out our ability to experience joy in resting in Jesus. God gave us this gift, but the danger is when we don't accept it because we just choke it out. And to me, this hinges on trust. Whether or not we trust in God. Do we trust that God will really provide for us in the best way? Or do we work more in order to do our job, but then also to do his. We expand our role and we try to be God in our own lives. So rest and sleep, Solomon is teaching us that it's a gift given unto you. For God forces us and allows us to stop and to rest in him and let him do what only he can do. But we work harder and sleep less because we want more control in our hands. But Solomon's life and this psalm that he leaves us, that thankfully leaves us, it reminds us that we're fully dependent on God. You can trust him. So this is my second point, that rest and play are gifts from God, but we have to trust him in order to enjoy them. He gives us this gift. It's a gift. It's a blessing. You can feel loved as a result of it, and like God is loving you, but unless we trust him, we can't enjoy it. So these are my two major points that I want to nail in, is that we have a role, but only God is in control, and that rest and play is a gift from God that we must, in, we must trust him to enjoy. So do you trust God enough that he's going to take care of you and do exactly the right thing in your life that you will maybe withhold from overworking and be able to rest and have fun? Many times our insecurities are going to seep in at that moment where you question it, and it's going to tell you you didn't do enough, or you are not good enough, or you won't be good enough when the time comes. But it's at these times where we need to speak truth into our lives, saying, God loves me too much. He's too much in control, lovingly, 
in order for my life to go to shambles. Don't listen to yourself. Speak truth to yourself. So what are some things that we can do to trust God? I already used the word, but my key word for today is simply boundaries. I think we need boundaries on our work, but I also think we need boundaries on our rest and boundaries on our play. Um, Boundaries from work to make sure that we don't pass it and boundaries that tell us, are you properly filling your areas of play and rest? So I want to challenge everybody today or right now or sometime this week or this month or please, before it's too late and you're just, you just, just wore yourself out too much and then you're saying, oh, I'm burnt out, like, you know, and you're just upset and, and, and just too tired to examine your week. Make, make your own pie chart and figure out what are the percentages and what's too much, what's too little, how can you adjust it? Some of us, we're at the library and we have no limit to how long we can be there. We can be there for 10 hours and we're like, oh, well, I can always do another and we just grab another coffee. We never think about, okay, I'm going to do five hours in the library. I'm going to do my best, and no matter what, I'm going to leave. That's a boundary. Some of us are at work longer than our boss expects us to because we want to make sure that they see us doing the extra. But can you unapologetically leave the office knowing that your boss, his opinion of you is not going to dictate your future, but that you want to actually lovingly and graciously receive the God gives you in being able to rest freely and peacefully? So I want to encourage everybody to make one small change. If you try to blow up your whole schedule, oh my God, he's right. Like I'm busy in every single way. I'm going to change it all. You're not going to. You won't. But can you change one small thing this week? Can you add one miniature boundary? Maybe it's Sundays. I'm going to work really, really hard on Saturday nights for my studies and for my exam on Monday. But no matter what, I'm going to not touch a book on Sundays. Just one change. If that sounds crazy to you, then fine. Just Sunday till 5 p.m. Do whatever you need to do to protect and to receive this gift. Don't we want the gift? Isn't it like, here, do you want the lottery ticket? No, I don't. I want to go to the office. It's a gift. Receive it. I really, friends, I really, really, really don't believe that God intended our lives for us to be perpetually tired. Can I get an amen? That is not the intention for us to be perpetually tired. Let's do something about it. Ultimately, like I said, it's going to be a matter of our hearts. It's whether we truly trust God to take care of our lives without pushing to the limits. Is God going to get you the right job in the right school, the right family, the right home, the right security, even if you don't push, push harder and harder at the office or in the library? Is God going to provide for your kids the future that they need without you thinking that you need to create every best opportunity for your kids? He loves them more than you do. Is God going to provide for you the future that he wishes and hopes for your whole life and give you what you need? Is God going to take care of me when I'm out of control? The answer is a resounding yes. But all of us are going to struggle to say yes quickly at many points in our lives. 
And when you struggle and waver, when that question is, I don't think so, or your answer is, I don't think so, or I worry that he won't, when you can't get yourself to let go, I want to ask you to just look upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Many of us wear the pendant jewelry. A lot of us have it tattooed on our bodies. Look at it somehow, whether just close your eyes and just think about it, hold it, touch your necklace or whatever it is. Think about the cross. Because what happened on the cross is that Jesus, he freed us from what would have been the most toiling and burdensome, impossible to accomplish labor that we would have ever needed to do. The Bible tells us that because of our sin, we were in a place where we could work all we wanted and as hard as we possibly could, but we could never, ever, ever meet God's standard in making up for our transgressions. We could work all we wanted and we would never measure up. But he intervened. The Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to completely fulfill that work on the cross so that we don't have to earn God's favor anymore. We don't need to earn our status or our worth and our value anymore because of Jesus, regardless of our work, our production, nothing can change the truest part of our identity. And that's why we say it's good news. It's the gospel. Friends, you could fail at every single endeavor that you set your heart out to. You could flunk every test that you ever take, get rejected from every school that you apply to. Your kids could end up becoming failures according to the word and not succeeding in the ways that you wished. You could bomb every interview, get rejected from every job application that you send out in every company. You could get fired multiple times from companies where people say they don't want you anymore. And still, even still, it would not make the slightest smudge of your worth and your value. Because our truest identity is found in being a beloved son and daughter of Jesus Christ. And so when you doubt, when the question is presented before you, do I need to just take a deep breath and down another coffee and push harder and you can't say no to that? I want you to look upon the cross and say, Jesus did all the work And your value and your worth is untouchable and infinitely precious and beautiful because of the cross. You are not defined by your work. You are defined by Jesus' work. We are not defined by our work and our accomplishments. We are singularly and solely defined by Jesus' work on the cross. That's it. So if you can accept that gracious gift, and if that can bring you to a place of peace, I want to invite you to rest. Greatest sermon application ever. Stop working and go have fun. Right? Honestly. But when you can't, Don't listen to me just because I'm saying, oh, go have fun. Like, I know, I know. When people say that, I know a lot of us get pissed. Don't tell me to have fun. You don't know all the responsibilities in my life. I know, I know. Just relax. Let's look to the cross. Let's accept Jesus' gracious gift in your life to rest. Let's trust that even when we are out of control, it's actually better for you. 
that he's going to take care of you because he loves you too darn much to not. And you are not defined by your accomplishments and by your work. You're defined by the cross and Jesus' work on it. Would you just bow with me in prayer? I want to ask um, something, honestly, that I, I don't know, I felt a little bit bad about was there's some people in this room who you're doing a really good job and it's like, I don't know, there's like 30 minutes of listening to a guy rant about working too much and I have good balance. Um, but I know that there are a lot of us here who we really, really wrestle with control. We wrestle with the fear and worry that if we don't, if we let go, something bad is going to happen. And so I want you to think of that thing. I want to invite everybody just to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just think about something that you just want to let go of control over and just just let it go. And if you want, you can symbolically just open your hands, spread your fingers, face your palms to the ceiling, and just let it go. And in Christianity, the beauty is it's not a flippant let it go. It's not a, oh, get over it. But it's a freedom. It's a security in trusting Jesus that he loves you so much to not take care of it, let it go. So let's do that for a moment. I want to invite you to take that time, and then I'll pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you are fully in control of every bit and piece of our lives. We are so grateful that even when we worry, you're patient with us and you lovingly care for us. And God, I I guess I felt the burden this week of how much worry we have in this congregation. Worry about our children, about our futures, and, and how much it means to us worried about their job that we're going to have next or whether all the hard work in undergrad is going to pay off in getting into grad. It's heavy on our souls. But you give us a great freedom and you lovingly invite and beckon us in to come and rest in you. I want to pray for my friends here for every one of us who struggles to say, yes, I trust. Who says, yes, I'm letting go. Who says, yes, I want to rest in, this, in Jesus and accept this gift. For all of us who struggle and it's so hard to get to that place, I pray that you would make the cross just so big in their hearts, in their souls, in their minds, in their eyes. And they would know the full accomplishment that you did by surrendering up your life on the cross. And as we think of your triumphant resurrection and your ascension into heaven and that you reign 
in heaven on your throne right now. And how that is the only piece of work that we need. And it means everything to us. So when we waver, we ask for you to be patient with us because you know that we just worry too much. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would nudge us to think, to realize, to digest, and fully believe that it's Jesus' work that defines us. So Father, I pray for freedom here. (laughs) I'm not joking. I pray that our church would work less and play more. Because we want to peacefully and lovingly accept this gift that you give us. So Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We pray that you would help us along the way. And as we close this series, we say, Lord, it's not just a church where we're following Jesus. We want to live out our faith in every area of our lives. We are your disciples, and we want to follow you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.